It is a great day in Anderson, everybody, and welcome to the Anderson Observer Podcast. News from people you trust, and like the Louis Armstrong song there, it is hotter than hot. But it's summertime, so what do we expect around here? We are in those dog days of summer, those hot, sultry, humid days that are historically the period following the rising of the star system Sirius, which in Greek astrology connected it with heat, drought, sudden thunderstorms, people feeling lethargic, people getting fevers, dogs going mad, and people just having bad luck. But hang on, Labor Day's not far away and Halloween is just 80 days away. Election Day is right after that. Then Thanksgiving is just over 100 days away. And we all know what comes next and we'll talk more about that soon. But there's a lot going on and it's all in the cloud of the pandemic uh, and things are being affected by that and everybody knows it. And there are a lot of people already planning for the days ahead when the pneumonia and traditional flu season kick back in. Healthcare professionals are worried and they're already overworked. And I'm sure they're concerned. Uh, you probably read AnMed has seen steady rises in their uh, occupancy of beds. And um, we're doing things that we can. The mask requirement for the city of Anderson they finally passed seems to have had some effect, at least from a non-scientific observation. I've seen more people wearing masks in stores in downtown. And that'll hopefully have a positive outcome on reducing the virus in Anderson. So far, Anderson has reported more than 2,400 confirmed cases and 58 deaths from COVID-19. And, you know, it was uh, last week the Anderson County Historic Courthouse was hit really hard by COVID-19 with as many as half of the 50 folks who regularly work there contracting the virus, including Anderson County Administrator Rusty Burns, who I recently talked to and said he's recovering, getting better, but he's still reporting some weakness and lack of energy. Uh, admission to that building still limited. I know a lot of people that work in that building. I'm there a lot, and some are really sick, so please keep them in your prayers and thoughts in the days ahead. Also, the Anderson County uh, Annex building down there, the old Kroger on River Street, remains shut down until Monday after an outbreak of the virus there. So things are really being affected by this. Schools are gearing to start back up, and all the superintendents are watching the numbers make, to make their decisions on the safety of students, faculty, and staff. You can find interviews with all the superintendents that are sitting from Districts 1, 3, 4, and 5 at the Anderson Observer News from People You Trust online newspaper. You can find it there. There's, there's interviews with all of them. Just search the search them in the search box there. Of course, Anderson County District 2 is without a superintendent after buying out the remaining contract of Superintendent Richard Rosenberger. And Rosenberger was almost immediately hired by Anderson County School District 5 as director of the new virtual school for District 5. Um, Anderson County School District 5 Superintendent Tom Wilson praised Rosenberger as one of the finest educators he'd ever worked with, so he was really happy to have him. As for the new school year, Right now, it looks kind of like this. District 1 plans to start August 25th. District 2 has a schedule. You'll have to look it up even on their website or Facebook. But K-8 through and virtual learning will begin Tuesday. Then on August 19th, students with the last names A through D will report to school. On August 20th, last names E through K will report to school. August 21st, L through R will report to school. August 24th, students with the last names S through Y will report to school. District 3's elementary and middle schools start August 31st and high schools start September 8th. District 4 will announce on August 18th. The superintendent's waiting to see the latest information before she announces final numbers. And District 5 will begin classes September 8th. All of these uh, districts are offering online only virtual schools and many of them are having a hybrid of that. You, you, if you're in that district, you can find out more from your district office. They'll tell you that. And however you feel about the upcoming school year, whether in-person, online, both, please remember to be extra patient and kind to teachers and administrators who are sailing in some really uncharted waters for educators here. Um, the best plans will be difficult. 
and having to watch daily virus counts and death tolls and contagions and everything really adds to an ongoing challenge and pressure that already exists every year in education. So if you know a teacher, even if you don't have kids in school anymore, if you know anybody, a neighbor, a friend, family member that's a teacher, how about sending them a nice note, maybe a gift card to show your appreciation because you know how difficult what they're going through and that would be a really kind gesture right now. Back to school also means the return of at least some return of at least some fall sports. As of today, high school football will be played in South Carolina, but we really don't have a lot of details yet as to how many fans will be allowed in the stands and some of the other things. We're waiting to hear from that. College sports is a mismatch. Uh, Anderson University has postponed all fall sports along with their conference until spring. Clemson University and the ACC said they're still planning to begin an abbreviated schedule in football in late September. But right now, it's unclear how those will be handled in terms of fans as well. So just stay tuned to that. The national election is about 13 weeks away. And one of the biggest races is the U.S.-South Carolina Senate seat currently held by Lindsey Graham. I talked to Graham's challenger, Jamie Harrison. Most of the recent polls show Jamie in a dead heat for this election. And Harrison's a bright, energetic, and he's very positive about things. And he says that he has the experience to serve and... This interview had a few technical issues, so it picks up about five minutes in after Harrison and I had talked about what a positive influence his family had had on shaping who he is today. And how he first realized that he had uh, the potential for leadership uh, after the Space um, Shuttle Challenger disaster. As I had been elected president of my class, uh, of, uh, of my classroom. And I remember the, uh, you know, you remember that was when the teacher went up Absolutely. in space and her student was uh, on TV talking about the fact that her, you know, her teacher passed away. And I, and I remember her saying, what would I have said if that was the situation for me? Right. Because it, this, this girl, the young girl was the president of her class. And so that was the first time I, I kind of recognized that in myself. And then, you know, as I got older, you know, I started running for things uh, in middle school and in high school. I was I ended up being the uh, uh, vice president of the student body when I was in high school. I was president of National Honor Society. Um, uh, I started winning a lot of leadership awards and getting opportunities to travel uh, country. I, I was one of the two kids of uh, my year to win the United States Senate Youth Program through the Hearst Foundation. Um, uh, where you got an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C., like a United States center, uh, and to, uh, because there were two people chosen from every state, uh, and you got the opportunity to meet your center. So I met Strom Thurmond, met Fritz Hollins, uh, went to the White House, and uh, it went to the uh, Justice Department, the Pentagon. Um, and so that's really when I got uh, a a real keen interest in Washington, D.C., and thought it was just an amazing place um, to really get things done. And so you went to Yale. Did you have any idea when you got to Yale you were heading for a career in politics? I, you know, I always knew, I knew then I was interested in politics, and, and part of that interest in politics was, uh, I think, started when I was just a kid. My grandfather, who had a fourth-grade education, but he religiously watched the news every every morning and every night. And he worked construction, so he would get up in, at the crack of dawn in the morning. Um, and he would sit, you know, he'd drink his coffee, he'd get some breakfast, uh, and he would watch the news. And so I would wake up, 
we have one TV, and so that meant that whatever's on my grandfather's watching, I'm watching too. Uh, but I would pepper him with questions about the presidents. And whatever reason, I had this obsession with the presidency. Uh, not that I, I don't want to run for the president, let me, <laughs> but as a kid, I, I did. And so I would ask my grandfather these questions. Now, in retrospect, I don't know if my grandfather knew the correct answers, but at that time, it, for me, it seemed as if he did. Um, and so that really sparked an interest in, in our government. And so um, I, uh, uh, and then I remember when Jesse Jackson gave the speech in 88. I mean, and, and here, and I heard in the news that he was from South Carolina. And then Bill Clinton uh, ran for president in 92, a kid who uh, grew up in a family with a single mom similar to my, my own, um, you know, for a point in time, and, you know, from the South. Uh, and then, you know, he eventually went to Georgetown undergrad and Yale Law School. And so I did the reverse. I went to Yale Law School, I mean, Yale undergrad and Georgetown Law School. And so, you know, all of these sort of things just continued to spark my interest, and I just wanted to learn more. Um, and I eventually got an internship um, after my freshman year with Fritz Hollins, uh, and then I got an internship after my uh, junior year with Jim Clyburn. Uh Again, all kind of feeding onto this interest in learning more about policy, policy and politics. The one thing that is a little bit different in your biography, though, is you finished Yale and you went back to Orangeburg to teach high school. What I did. That seems like a, a diversion there, but tell me why you did that. Well, you know, at, at Yale, I, I participated in the teacher preparation program. See, I've always loved education and education policy in particular um, because I understood the importance of education in my life. Like, I would not be here right now if it were not for my education and uh and i've always had a love for it. uh and so i had um part of how i ended up teaching was i applied to law school my senior year and i got i got in uh and i got a sizable scholarship to go to vanderbilt school of law uh, but I deferred. I decided to defer Vandy for one year because I wasn't really quite ready to go to law school yet. Um, and I um, and my grandfather was sick um, and because he had been dealing with his complications with diabetes. So I was thinking, you know, and I missed being home with my grandparents. I, I said to myself, well, why don't I just take a year off, go and you know maybe go back home. I can teach, and and then go to law school after that. And so, uh, and that's what I did. Now you're saying, well, Jamie, you didn't go to Vanderbilt for law school, you went to Georgetown. Well, it was because that summer, after I had taught for a year, that summer I was like, okay, what am I gonna do for the summer before I go to, because I already had an apartment in Nashville and everything. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And I went to Washington, D.C. for the summer, and I started working with a program called College Summit, a program that helped low-income kids get into college, similar to myself. And I, I, I worked with them. The guy, the founder, was a, a guy who went to Yale. Um, and I just absolutely loved it because it just, it was so transformative. These were kids who many didn't think that they were college-ready or college-caliber. But we were able to help them get there, and they, we were seeing this transformation in them overnight. And I just caught the bug, and uh, about two weeks before I was supposed to leave 
D.C. to drive to Nashville. I mean, I had already got an apartment. I had a computer. I had paid my uh, uh, deposit and all. Uh, the guy, uh, J.P. Stram, said, Jamie, I want you to be the COO for College Summit. And I was like, whoa, you know, I, I'm about to go to law school. And he said, listen, I think you could help us take this organization to the next level. And I really want you to think about it. So I prayed about it, thought about it, talked with my mom. My mom was furious. She was like, you have to go to law school because if you don't go, you won't go. But in the end of the day, I was able to convince her that I would go. And so I gave up my seat at Bandy um, and my scholarship. And I went with College Summit. And um, uh, I did that for a few years. And then eventually the itch for law school came back. And I started Georgetown at night uh, while still working at College Summit. But, uh, but that, that, was, that was the path. I'm going to kind of put these two questions together because I want to try to get to all our questions. But how did, yeah. those, how did those experiences, and you just mentioned you prayed about, and your faith shape your political philosophy as you were moving through those times? Well, my, my faith has always been very, very strong in me. And, you know, as a kid, I used to worry a lot. I used to worry about the world. Um, I was telling uh, my wife the other day, because we were talking about my five-year-old, who, who's um, right now uh, dealing with so much anxiety about the coronavirus, not so much because of the... And I was telling her how, as a kid, I used to be the same way. Uh, I remember the, the Tiananmen Square uh, situation, and um, and you remember the guy standing in front of that Absolutely. tank. And I just, you know, I constantly asked my grandfather all the time because I watched the news with him, and I asked him about that guy and I said, "Well, is he okay?" Uh, and, and my grandfather had no answer to it, but I, I was constantly, and it bothered me for weeks. Um, and so it wasn't until my grandma really told me, she said, Jamie, you know, uh, I know that you care so much about all the world and all. But she said, you know, the thing, the way to make things better is that you pray about things and you leave it in the Lord's hands and you do all that you can do. You leave it in the Lord's hands and then you, you try to move on. And, and eventually I had to learn how to do that um, because it, it was hard. But, it, but when I started doing that, I saw that more and more of the things that I saw as barriers and, and uh, hardships and anchors that were pulling me down were actually being addressed. And so it, it sort of, you know, my faith became that little mustard seed that just kind of, um, and so, you know, when I look at situations, I know things are hard, and, but I, I, I'm a testament to that every time there's been a challenge in my life, I've, I've prayed, I've done everything that I can do. And then I leave it to the Lord to take the next step. And, and, and each time it's worked out. And sometimes it's worked out in a way that I did not anticipate for it to work out. Even though I would be disappointed in something, it's miraculously like another door would open up for me. So I, I, don't, I, I try not to worry about much. And, and, and the strength of where that comes from is my faith. Because I understand that I'm a good person. I try to do the best things to all people and for all people. And that in the end of the day, the Lord is, is measuring and protecting every one of my steps. It's interesting because some of the things you were saying there reminded me of a lot of the, uh, the civil rights movement. I knew Hosea Williams pretty well. And he, he would speak oh, yeah. very clearly, like, the, like you're speaking there, he would say things very, the, the outgrowth of everything he did came from his faith and that kind of thing. All right, so you, you did that, and then you went for Jim Clyburn's office, and yep. 
you got a taste of what Congress was like there. Yeah, first and, and I first met Clyburn when I was a junior in high school. I uh, he had just got elected uh, to Congress, first black man, uh, black person from uh, since Reconstruction here in South Carolina, and I had just been elected president of my National Honor Society. And so I actually called up his office and asked if he could come uh, to our National Honor Society event and install me as president. And he actually showed up. <laughs> so we've been longtime friends, and, and uh, he's been a mentor since. And you, you after after you left there, you, you worked for a lobbying group. You've, you've worked from every angle. What have you learned about the system and about how Congress works from working from all the different places you've been? Well, I think it's made, it's made me appreciate our system so much because I've worked in nonprofits, I've worked for government, I've worked in for for-profit entities, um, and, and so therefore it gives me more of a 360-degree angle in looking at different situations. I'm not just looking at it from you know this government perspective or a nonprofit perspective or a for-profit. I can look at it from all angles and understand how people will will we'll also uh, tackle it from those various angles. So I think it makes me and gives me a, a better understanding and appreciation. Um, and, and to know that when you're sitting at a negotiating table with all of those various entities, how to move people to a point where you can make progress and get everybody on the same page. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate uh, uh, the perspective. You know, I got the opportunity to work with Michelin. I got the opportunity to work with uh, Boeing and, and the South Carolina Ports Authority, um, the University of South Carolina, a lot of great companies here in South Carolina uh, and organizations that are doing good work. Uh, and I was able to take my, my knowledge of how Congress works and couple that with a better understanding of what was needed in terms of uh, the corporations and the for-profit entities that were in the state and what they were trying to accomplish for, for workers here. Uh, in order to try to do good things for South Carolina. And so uh, I wouldn't take back any uh, experience that I, I've had because it all makes me, I believe, a, a better person, a more, uh, a more complete person uh, in, in terms of then being able to go back to Washington, D.C., working on, on behalf of all the people of South Carolina. And so you think that's the Senate's the best place for you to launch that work now? Well, I think so. I mean, listen, when you think about it, when my work on Capitol Hill, I was one of the top 50 staffers on Capitol Hill consistently uh, for a number of years. My job was uh, to, to instruct members of Congress of how to do their jobs. I mean, so I had to know enough about how Congress operates to give uh, members of Congress great advice on ways to move forward, and particularly the leadership. Uh, so I don't go into this as, uh, you know, as a freshman member, I'll know where the bathrooms are. I'll know how to get bills passed because that was my job for a number of years. I even wrote a book on how to, you know, called Climbing the Hill, how to build a career in politics and make a difference, uh, explaining the Senate and the House of Representatives and the work that they do. So I, I feel like I go in probably with much more knowledge and, and expertise than many people. Uh, going to Congress or to the U.S. Senate. Uh, and at the same time, I've got a foot in, in, in all of these various generations. Uh, unlike our, our senator right now, I know what personal student loan debt's about, right? I, I, I grew up in a generation where student loan debt became a problem or an issue. Uh, 
uh, I know the importance of having the internet right now and, and, and the lack of internet and what how that um, becomes a barrier to, to uh, generations uh, to come. At the same time, because I grew up with my grandparents, I also know all the issues of seniors right now and the things that senior citizens are dealing with. And, and you know, I'm still helping to take care of my grandma. Uh, I, I know the barriers and the concerns about Social Security and Medicare. Um, uh, that you know the 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 importance in terms of uh, handling and uh, forcing down the prices of prescription drugs, uh, and so I feel like I, I have this unique foot in in, in all of these different worlds. Uh, I, I'm also a parent, so I, I know what it's like you know right now trying to make a decision about whether or not you send your kid to school, um, and and the the hardships of finding childcare right now, and so. Uh, you know, that's a very unique perspective. Right now, we don't have uh, a person that is a parent who's a United States senator from South Carolina. Uh, when the, the state is grappling with issues that parents and families have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think having those perspectives are important, uh, particularly when you're sitting across the table with leaders in the White House or whatever, and you're making decisions on all of these uh, bills that impact the lives of folks. And if you don't have that experience, or at least somebody at the table with that experience, then uh, you're probably not doing the, 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 the best work you can uh, for all the people in South Carolina. And some of those things you're talking about there, constituent services, and really probably the most powerful political figure in South Carolina in the past 100 years, Olin D. Johnson, who may have set the template for constituent services for everybody to follow. Fritz did after, took his banner after that. And, and, and Strom Thurmond. I, I mean, in terms of my lifetime, the, probably the best the constituent service person that I've seen has been Strom. I think Strom bought a lot of that from Olin Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't remember Olin Johnson. Democrat. He was the most powerful. He was an FDR yeah. progressive yeah. Yeah, Democrat. Yeah, I, I know who yeah, Johnson. Yeah, I know. I, know you I just I wasn't born. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you know, and I tell this story all the time about Strom Thurmond uh, and Fritz. So when my mom, my mom was 16 when she had me and uh, stopped school because she, she needed to find a job to help take care of me. And so when she was about 18 or 19, she wanted to move out of my grandparents' house to get her own place. Uh, and, and again, she wanted to be able to, to take care of me. And so uh, she couldn't find a job in Orangeburg. So uh, somebody told her, well, you know, Patricia, you should reach out to your senators. And she did. She wrote a letter to Strip, uh, Fritz Hollins and Strom Thurmond, and they both responded, uh, you know, basically saying, I'm a young mom and trying to find a job, can't find one. So they both responded, and they set her up on a number of interviews with various companies in, South, in, in Orangeburg. Well, ironically, it was Strom Thurmond's office that got my mom an interview that eventually led her to get the job, the first job that she had. Uh, it was at this company called Starflow that made these little widgets for faucets and stuff. And so I remember when my mom told me that story. I said, Mama, are you sure that was Strom Thurmond? And she smiled and she said, yeah, it was. And, I, and she said, well, you know what, Jamie? You know, they never asked me what story I belonged to. All they knew was that I was a constituent that needed help. And in essence, that is what the nature of all this is all about. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, Black, or White, or what have you, or who you voted for. 
you know, when you have the job of a United States senator or a United States congressperson, your job is to provide the services to your constituent, to be that public servant, to do the blocking and tackling that people need in terms of the barriers that they face to live in the American dream. And the one thing I can't say about Lindsey Graham is that he is of that same ilk. Uh, I've heard so many complaints from folks about not getting calls back, that the people in his office don't know things about South Carolina, um, you know, and on and on and on and on. And he inherited and Thurman's staff, basically. So, I mean, there's really not yeah. a lot of reasons. <laughs> no, exactly. It, it's about it's about the interest, right? Because I also, as somebody who's worked on the Hill, know that there are certain types of members of Congress. There's some members of Congress that are policy wonks. There's some that are politicals. They just like the politics. There's some that are constituent service driven, like making sure that veterans get their, their benefits, that people get on Social Security and get on disability and all those type of things. And then there's some that are just good at all those things, sort of a renaissance type member. Uh, Lindsey Graham is one that likes the limelight and likes the politics. And everything else is sort of a residual in, in, in that. But that's not his focus. I understand that we need in a senator, not somebody that is a show horse, but somebody that is a workhorse. Because we got too many problems dealing with, we are dealing with here in South Carolina, not to have someone willing to roll up their sleeves to deal with just the day-to-day -day issues people are dealing with. The lack of infrastructure, the lack of broadbands, the horrible roads that we have, the fact that our schools are falling apart. There's so much that we can do and and but we need somebody that is focused on actually doing that work and this man hadn't had a town hall a live in-person town hall in almost three years now um and, and that but he's on fox news every other night with sean hannity or he's golfing with the president this weekend you know, or last weekend or the weekend before that i can't keep up with the number of weekend there's so many issues that we got to deal with here in south carolina that you got to have somebody who really is interested in those issues and is willing to work on those, uh, and, and that's what I what I will do as a U.S. senator. What are some of the challenges of running against an incumbent during the pandemic? I mean, that's that's got to be a difficult. Uh... It it is it is very difficult. You know, right now, and particularly, I think campaigning in the South is different. Because we are used to the, we like to touch and feel, you know, we, you got the hug and you got to shake hands and, uh, and you go to those, you know, the, the church after church gatherings or uh, the fish fries or the barbecues. Um, and so it's hard because you can't really do that in, in these pandemics and not, not do it responsibly so that you're following the, the uh, recommendations you get from DHEC and the CDC. And that's the one thing that I'm, I'm trying to make sure that we do, because I don't want to, you know, my North Star is to protect the health of every single person here in South Carolina. And I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes anybody's health um, or just in order to win a campaign. It doesn't, uh, campaigns are important, but the lives of the people in South Carolina are even more important to me. Um, and so, so then my quest is, how do I connect with people when I can't be with them physically? Uh, and so you might have noticed from my, my campaign ads, what I'm trying to do is tell a story. Uh, because I think through the stories of people understanding who I am, how I grew up, the values that, that drive me to this point, that they get a better understanding of who I am as a man. Uh, and, and that those are the values I will take with me 
to the United States Senate. That is not to say that we're going to agree on every issue or everything. I'm sure there are a lot of things. I, I don't agree with my wife on everything. She doesn't agree with me on everything. I still love her uh, uh, to the moon and back. But, but nonetheless, I want folks to understand the way that I look at the world and the perception that I have and the values that drive me. Uh, and that's why we have been trying to, to have our ads have that type of heartbeat um, and, and, to, and, and to tell a story. And uh, so I'm trying my best through those ads, through how we communicate in our online town halls, uh, to give people just a sense that, you know, I value them um, and, and uh, I, I want them to give me the opportunity to work on their behalf. South Carolina is one of only six states left that allows that one push-button voting, straight-ticket voting. Is that, a, is that a hill to overcome as well? You know, it, it will make it, it much more difficult. But listen, man, I've lived with long odds my entire life, um, you know, from my very start. So I'm not one of those people that, you know, starts off all nervous. Oh, my God, am I going to win? No, you know, people... <laughs> There are kids like me that are getting out of the poverty that I was in and going to Yale and, and going to, you know, Georgetown and, and being able to run for the U.S. Senate. But what I'm trying to do and the reason why I'm doing this is because I want that to actually be the norm. I want to make sure that we're giving every kid in this country, in this state, the opportunity to live their American dream just the way that I've lived my American dream. So I know uh, you know, I'll take being the David to Lindsey Graham's Goliath, right? Uh, knowing that there's going to be long odds, knowing that you're going into it and you may not win. But if we can change the lives of folks as we run this race, if we can make an impact on folks, if we can inspire people to be better as a result, if we can change Lindsey Graham's behavior uh, so that he focuses on South Carolina, and we have seen a change in his behavior. For the first time, he's now talking about the, the need for broadband here in South Carolina. Uh, you know, he's changed his tune from saying over our dead bodies will uh, I'll allow extension of the federal unemployment benefit uh, to now saying, oh, yeah, we need to do something. Right. And it's only because we are putting the pressure on him each and every day, every word he utters, every time he gets in front of a microphone. And we're reminding the people of South Carolina about who he is and what he's doing in, in Washington, D.C. If he wants to just uh, promote himself and all, then we can give him the opportunity to do that after November 3rd. He can go on Fox News as a pundit or whatever. But we need somebody that's going to work on behalf of the people of South Carolina and not work against them. And right now, I just don't see that. And, and I say this as someone who used to have a tremendous amount of respect for Lindsey Graham. I used to work with his office quite often on a number of the clients that I had. And even when I worked in Jim Clyburn's office, uh, I know many of his staffers very well and, and have always respected them and always have respect for Lindsey. But I just think he's changed. He's not the same Lindsey Graham that so many folks in the state used to respect. Had he stayed the same guy, I would not be running this race for the U.S. Senate right now uh, out, of, out of respect for him. Again, I don't always agree with him. But I thought that at the end of the day, he was a state's person. He would rise above the political frame, do what was in the best interest of the state. But I just don't feel like we are the priority of Lindsey Graham right now. I believe that the priority of Lindsey Graham is Lindsey Graham and, and his own celebrity and his own political relevance. And in the end of the day, that doesn't put food on the table or make lives better for the folks here in South Carolina. 
And you've been described as a moderate. If that's a fair description, how would you define moderate? Yeah, you know, I, I look at myself as fairly pragmatic. And I think by virtue of the way that I grew up, you, you had to be pragmatic, meaning that uh, you can't get all your hopes up about certain things, that you take the progress that you get when you get it, um, but you try to work with everybody. And, and that's the type of approach. When I was the chair of the state party, you know, one of my closest friends in politics in the state was my Republican counterpart, Matt Moore. I mean, I think they even wrote a few articles about it. Matt and I even taught a class at the University of South Carolina together. Um, because the way that I look at it, Republicans aren't my enemies. Uh, you know, they aren't some evil group over on the other side. You know, we may take different routes, but I always hope that the destination is the same. That we're, we're working at making South Carolina the best state that she can be for all of her people. And so... Um, and, you know, and Lindsey Graham used to be that kind of bipartisan law, lawmaker, somebody who could bridge the gap and help. And, but I hope, again, Lindsey's a different person. I hope to go to the United States Senate and, and take on that role because we know we so desperately need some people in the middle who can bridge the gaps between the left and the right, uh, between progressives and conservatives, and just focus on doing the right things over the things that are wrong right now. The citizens of the upstate have this feeling that we don't get enough attention, both from the state government, where almost all the leadership's in the PD, to the national government, even though we have a senator from the upstate. Uh, and there's a basis for it. Anderson County, for example, has more international investment than any other county. 51 companies from 18 countries. Uh, the I-85 corridor, you already know you mentioned Michelin, BMW, Bosch, uh, have U.S. headquarters here. Uh, what strategies would you employ to help meet the challenges of folks in the upstate who feel like we've been forgotten? Yeah, well, and, and, and I think the, the parts of the upstate, you know, when many people think of the upstate, they only think of Greenville and Spartanburg. And, and they don't think about some of the surrounding counties in, in those areas and some of the unique issues that they're dealing with, particularly the more rural components of those, of, of those areas. I am working on a rural agenda right now that I think will particularly help some of our upstate counties that, that have uh, big stretches of rural communities. Um, and, and that's a really important thing. This is gonna be a multi-pronged approach. We're gonna look at how we address infrastructure issues uh, from broadband. I know that broadband is a big issue, uh, a lack of uh, reliable broadband and internet uh, in parts of, of Anderson County, uh, the Pillington area and, and in the Sandy Springs area. Um, so I, I know quality of water is also a big issue. I, I think y'all have a few of these 40 communities in South Carolina where the, where the lead level is higher than the federal standards. Um, and so, you know, we want to focus some energy on how we address these infrastructure issues in these rural communities that don't have the tax base and the revenue in order to really uh, uh, bring the bear. Uh, you know, I've talked to so many mayors who tell me that, Jamie, you know, sometimes we qualify for federal grants, but we don't have the money to meet the match, right? So even if we got the federal grant, we can't take advantage of the federal grant because we don't have enough revenue in order to meet the match, or we don't have the funding in order to have the type of plan and program that is needed uh, to analyze the issues that we really have. So in my rural development plan, and it's about bringing hope back to those rural communities, I sort of lay out some steps for how we help these small rural com communities address those challenges that they're dealing with. 
But we also look at, in addition to infrastructure, we look at healthcare. Um, we've had uh, a number of rural communities uh, who have lost their hospitals over the past uh, a few years. Uh, just two years ago, we had 14 counties in South Carolina that didn't have any OBGYNs. Uh, so many medical specialties aren't found in some of these communities. Um, so we address that. We address education. Uh, we're going to face a real crisis in terms of, of teachers in the state in about two or three years, uh, just not having a whole bench of, of next generation teachers. Uh, again, not having the, the resources for some of our more impoverished school systems. Um, uh, so uh, let's see, in infrastructure, healthcare, education, uh, and, and the environment and the environmental justice issues. Um, we also include a, a farmer's bill of rights, uh, things to look at how to make farming easier and to help our farmers move into the 21st century in terms of, of uh, you know, looking at farming in the 21st century. So uh, I think it would be greatly beneficial to uh, the upstate uh, and, and many of the issues that are unique there and making sure that uh, all of the great things that have happened to, to Greenville just aren't uh, focused in Greenville, but those opportunities get to go to, to the surrounding communities as well. You mentioned broadband several times. That is a challenge. I think statewide is what, 38% don't have it. And I think Anderson yes. County is about 27, 28%. Uh, yeah. How quickly could the federal government move to rectify this, particularly in light of the pandemic? Would it be like, well, do you envision something like the FDR rural electric uh, expansion, something like that? Because it is a, I, it's a utility now. I, I do. It, it needs to be a utility. Just like we have electricity going into our homes, we should have broadband into our homes as well. Um, uh, and so, um, uh, you know, that's really, but right now, the United States Senate has a bill that is sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk right now, the HEROES Act, that was passed uh, by the House of Representatives, where Congressman Jim Clyburn put billions of dollars into that bill that will be able to send to the states to allow them to begin to develop more infrastructure, broadband infrastructure in their states. So if they just pass the HEROES Act, we could really take a huge few steps in terms of uh, in terms of laying down that infrastructure, it's going to take about eight hundred million dollars to fully wire South Carolina. But we got to have folks with a vision and the will to actually understand that this, this is a, a almost like a, it's a capital investment because if we want to do business, if we want to attract companies, more companies to South Carolina, uh, in order to address the the healthcare issue uh, and to make sure that our kids can compete with the rest of the world, we have to have broadband, period, full stop. So I, I know that uh, my, my staff is pulling me because we, we got our next uh, our next thing, but right. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, can I ask you one more quick question? The upstate's been asking me, I got the most questions about the Brownfield sites. Um, what, what could you do to help deal, because I think Greenville has 20, Anderson has eight, I think Richland has 35, they're all over the state, just sitting around waiting to be cleaned up. Well, we have to, and that's part of the environmental justice uh, uh, issues that I was talking about. Not only do we have to deal with climate change, but we got to deal with uh, some of the in environmental justice issues that so many communities are dealing with right now. And so that's going to be high on our priority list. It's going to be a part of this rule um, uh, plan that, that we have. 
Um, but we've got to clean up some of these sites. It, it's really, really important. And in the cleaning up process, we're also creating jobs at the same time. Uh, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's a, a net plus for us. But again, it, it takes the will uh, in, in order and the vision in order to get it done. And you have an online town hall this week, right? And that, is that uh, I, I believe. I, yes, I, I do. <laughs> I think young people. It, it's, it's so hard to keep up with the town halls. But yes. Well, I appreciate, well, you. I appreciate you your time, and uh, I'll hope to talk to you again maybe in the next 80 days. Sounds good. Thanks Take care of yourself and stay safe. Appreciate it. Thanks, James. Okay. Bye. And again, I uh, would like to apologize. There were some technical glitches on the Skype interview. We had originally had some video, and the video and audio uh, were problematic between Skype and, and some user error apparently on my end, although I still can't figure out what I did wrong. But... It's going to be a very interesting election, and I hope everybody will get out and vote, no matter who your candidate is. There's still time, if you're not registered to vote, to, to go and register. You can go to scvotes.org, or you can call the Anderson County Office of Voter and Registration, and they can tell you what you need to do. Local businesses are still struggling from the impact of the virus as well. Uh, some have closed permanently, and others are just hanging on. Restaurants, uh, many of them have closed. Some have reopened even though they're restricted to 50% capacity and they're using the distancing and mask laws and keeping things clean. But it's a very tough time and one we can, way we can all help is by supporting our local businesses. Um, try to find off hours and shop in local shops. If you're comfortable eating out in one of the places that is properly distancing and wearing masks and cleaning, you can get lunch or dinner at a locally owned restaurant or food to go. Many now have curbside pickup that make it easier. You can just call when you get there and you never have to leave your car. And one of those is Sullivan's Metropolitan Grill, a longtime sponsor of the Anderson Observer podcast, news from people you trust. They are open to in indoor seating and outdoor seating. And those high ceilings and reduced tables inside make it a safe dining experience as you can get. And if you've not tried them for lunch, drop by today and order a Reuben or an open-faced pot roast sandwich or what might be the best burger in town. Remember Sullivan's helped kick off the renaissance of downtown 25 years ago when nobody wanted to move downtown and has consistently been listed as one of the top 100 restaurants in the United States. They're also offering the same great food you can get there as catering. Um, you can get white tablecloth catering at prices that rival and even beat most of the caterers with far less quality and service. Check them out today. You can visit Sullivan'sMetroGrill.com or you can visit them on Facebook to find out more about Sullivan's and Catering, and we appreciate their sponsorship. A lot of other things have been put on hold or just flat out canceled due to the virus and the arts community has been hit particularly hard with theaters closed and no real schedule for when they may actually reopen. Uh, the governor has said there may be some special exemption granted for theaters but right now that's fuzzy and it doesn't seem to be a safe move. Uh, recently I talked to representatives of three of the largest theater groups in Anderson to ask what they thought about the restrictions and what it's meant to their organization. Will Raglan, who's executive director of the award-winning Milltown Players, had this to say. This COVID-19 virus has shut down all entertainment, pretty much. Nobody can come to a theater and see anything, from motion picture to live stage to anything. How has that uh, had an impact on the Milltown Players and what y'all are doing here? Well, Greg, we've had such a great season up until we had to shut down in mid-March. I mean, I was so proud of the work we were doing and I felt like we were on a roll and then everything just stopped and we thought perhaps it was going to be temporary and we didn't really know how uh, serious it was we thought it was just temporary and so of course we canceled that next production and we thought that was going to be it 
But now, of course, we've canceled the rest of our season. And we've also altered our next season and had to cancel some shows, our opening shows. And so now we're trying to open in mid-October to start rehearsing uh, after Labor Day. And I'm hoping we can do that because I've got the best show with a dream cast. It is uh, a Southern comedy and I'm, I'm gonna be torn up if I can't put that on. So basically, we are not doing anything for seven months at all. And the difference between other businesses and our own is that we are not allowed to open. Because to be honest, I specialize in bringing large groups of seniors together in small confined spaces. And that's the worst thing you can do right now. So there is no social distancing in the Pelzer Auditorium. It was built 100 years ago and the aisles are small, the seats are small, the bathrooms are small, everything's small. And so we have a unique challenge to try and figure out how we're going to survive this. Uh, we've had a lot of generous donors who have given us uh, some money to get us through these uh, summer months. Um, a lot of folks have donated their tickets that they had from this current season. And we're trying to sell tickets for next season. We've, we've opened up all sales for every show next season. And so uh, we're just trying to figure out how to tread water and not to drown in the deep end here. So, so the things that sort of make the Milltown Players Playhouse special, the intimacy, the small, the close to the stage, or the things that work against you in this virus. Correct. Remind people how many shows are in a normal season and how many you lost this year. Well, every season's a little bit different, but we tend to have 11 events altogether. We had to cancel Simple Man, which was a themed Southern rock concert. Our big, um, our big classic summer musical was The Music Man. It's gone. Our June comedy was The Red Velvet Cake War, which we moved to October, which was the one I was referencing. And then we had three special events, which were, uh, we have an Elvis impersonator from Honey a Path. We had a rockabilly uh, band concert and we had a Broadway cabaret, which has been an, an annual tradition. So uh, all of that was wiped out. And then for next season, we were going to open with James the Giant Peach, a youth show, followed by a uh, mystery thriller, The Woman in Black, which we were planning on taking to our state competition. And now those two are gone as well. And so we've moved Red Velvet Cake War to the beginning of next season and kept everything else. So if, if I can do that, if this thing will just go down and go away, if we can find a vaccine, I don't know what to do. But um, I think we'll be okay. But if I have to cancel that one and the Christmas show and maybe the next show, I, I don't know how we're gonna keep well, going. The Christmas show has almost become a local tradition in terms it of is, you have to add shows sometime, it's so big. It's our biggest show. And this next season, we've added Saturday matinees because they really want that. They've demanded that. So, um, I mean, we're still planning for these productions as if nothing's going to happen. We're, uh, you know, we've had, we have our cast for our first one. I'm directing it. I can't wait. Um, 
I'm assembling production teams for the rest of the shows. But, you know, seeing that Broadway's closed until January, and some theaters across the state have also chosen to do that and say no, no shows in 2020. And uh, I feel sorry for the kids in the high schools too, because especially seniors who are going back and thinking they're going to have a big fall production and, and who knows what's going to happen with that. Also colleges, you know, AU has a big production I was going to be working on um, with them for their set and, and they're talking about what to do with that. Lost the summer theater. Yes, everything in the summer has gone. Um, how about, that was the next question, how, how are the cast and crews that are normally involved in all this, how are they taking this? I mean, they have to be itching to do something. They are, and if, you know, I, I keep up with folks on social media and they just miss it, you know? For me personally, this is the longest break I've had from a show in 17 years, and it is very weird. And we miss the stress of it even. <laughs> I mean, you know, right now we would be gearing up for a giant summer musical and it was going to be a, a huge hit and I had the perfect cast. So hopefully we'll get to do that again in two years. We'll bring these shows back. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that. But in the meantime, um, we are reorganizing, as you can see, <laughs> all of our costumes and props. And we're doing some landscaping <laughs> and just doing some small things to try and, and make everything uh, more streamlined and efficient for when we do open back up, hopefully this fall. And how can people who are, you know, committed to local, uh, you know, local, the local arts and uh, particularly live theater, how can they continue to support you guys with the, while the virus is going on? Well, you know, there are a variety of ways to support your local community theater. Anderson County is blessed to have uh, multiple community theaters, at least five that I know of. And these places are near and dear to our patrons' hearts. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have contacted me and just said, we miss y'all. We miss coming. This was our thing we look forward to every month, you know. So how do you help us? Well, obviously the easiest way is to donate some, some money, and it can be anything, y'all. I just had a Facebook fundraiser for our birthday. Uh, Milltown Players was started on July 1st, six years ago, and that was very successful. So thanks to all who donated for that. But, um, you know, straight donations, they're still tax deductible. We are still nonprofit organizations. But also, uh, I would guarantee you that most of our theaters are doing something right now in the meantime. A lot of them are trying to put uh, online content out there. But, you know, like for us, we're taking advantage of this time to try and make our spaces uh, better usable, more usable. And our shop, we're redoing our shop. We're, we're tearing down some things in there. And so <clears throat> it might just be a matter of time. You know, I've got a friend of mine coming today who's going to help me reorganize costumes. Um, I know a lot of folks have been cleaning out their homes and if you've got things to donate, especially unique items, we always accept donations. Especially now's a great time because I know where it's gonna be. I'm organizing it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <clears throat> just knowing that we've got that support out there keeps us going because this is a relationship that we've established with our community and 
we do not intend to die. And uh, we will figure it out somehow. I don't know how. I just know that we'll figure it out. And the best place to contact y'all? Best place, you can contact us on Facebook or you can go to our website. There's a place you can just click on contact and I get that email directly. And that's just milltownplayers.org. And I always respond. So I'd love to hear from you. David Larson, uh, who's dean of the South Carolina School for the Arts and a theater professor at Anderson University, has been a real major player in the Anderson art community for decades. I've known him a long time. He said he sees this time as a time where creativity is rising to meet some of the challenges of not having a live audience and working with students and helping them prepare for their classwork and their, their concerts and other things are, has been a time when they can really look at new and, and possibly ways that might change things in the future. I don't know how many years you've been involved with arts and performing arts. It's been, it's been a few. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I don't quote the number. I just say I came in 1985. That's a few. <laughs> yeah, decades is what we're saying. That's here. right. Have you ever seen this kind of challenge uh, that's posed by the COVID virus towards the performing arts and theater? No, no. And it's it's comprehensive. Uh, let's in the terms of the theater. Let's start at the top. You know, uh, Broadway's been shut down for four months, and I don't think that's ever happened. I mean, all through the 20th century, it was running. All through the Depression. All through World War II and the First World War. Um, in fact, I read an article in the New York Times just last night that, uh, or gl glanced at it, that basically said uh, they were running plays during the 1918 pandemic in New York. <laughs> Not that that was a smart thing to do, but, uh, but this, has been, this has been a real challenge for the performing arts. And uh, it's almost, I, I, I kind of, I'm all, I tend to be optimistic, and so I, I, I kind of think of it as an opportunity. How do you take something that's a negative and make it an opportunity? I mean, it's an opportunity in theater and music and dance uh, for uh, the community, for example, in the upstate to pause and to uh, regroup and to focus on things they may not have time to focus on because they're so busy producing. Artists, performing artists are always about, in music, the next gig or the next concert or the next play or the next musical, you know, and, and sometimes I, I tell uh, my faculty here at Anderson University that, you know, we've got to get out of the crash and burn syndrome. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm all about the next show. When the show's over, I crash and burn, and then I pick up the pieces and try to rebuild and do it again. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so this may be the opportunity to look at some of the broader issues for arts groups. Opportunity to say, what is our purpose? How can we become more flexible? How can we become, how can we uh, pivot on a dime, as people are saying these days? I know uh, Dr. Whitaker, our president, talks about flexibility being the key for this next year. And, and we're showing that all the time. Our plans here at Anderson University at South Carolina School of the Arts are changing daily, it seems like. Not completely changing, but evolving. And we need to adjust with that. And, uh, and so it's, in that sense, it's an opportunity to look at the infrastructure of how things are put together. Um, for student artists, student performers, 
uh, and we have a lot of them, <laughs> we, uh, uh, it will be an opportunity to perform, but not as the end goal. Uh, it will be because that they will those performances will be segmented and small with no or very small audiences or video audiences, and uh, it's it's going to be particularly difficult because in music, for example, in musical theater, uh, it, the biggest challenge is singing. Uh, it's one thing for you and I, Greg, to be six feet apart from each other, uh, but they tell us uh, in best practices as we've been keeping current with, uh, that it's really about 15 feet in singing. Uh, they call it the aerosol effect. The, the part that makes you a really good singer, or I was telling somebody yesterday, the part that allows, you know, a, a opera prima donna at the Metropolitan Opera in New York to stand on stage and project to 3,000 people over an 80-piece orchestra without amplification. That same part shoots virus can shoot virus that far too. <laughs> and so <laughs> everything you know about projection uh, is, is uh, detrimental in terms of uh, virus health and trying to prevent. So what do we do? We focus on, we focus on, use a football image because football is a hot issue these days. We focus on the essentials. We focus on the primary, primary concerns. We're gonna make you a better singer. Okay, doesn't mean you're going to be doing a lot of large group better singing, but it, we're going to make you a better singer. And so as a result, when, when this lifts and we do get back to a sense of normal and we can do choral singing, uh, what we have as a group, as a performance, should be a higher quality performance. Uh, but mostly, not just, gee, I put together a good performance, but mostly those students will be better singers. And uh, so we're focused on the essentials. We learned a lot in the last half of the spring semester. Our kids went home for spring break. As you know, spring break at colleges and universities doesn't follow Easter. It just is smack in the middle of the term every time, like the, th the third week of March. And so uh, they go home and then they were notified that they're gonna stay home an extra week while we get ready. And then they were notified a few days later, they're just gonna stay home. <laughs> and we were, we were scrambling, like every other university, and uh, and we made the transition and we did it well. It was difficult, and uh, at times even stre highly stressful because for faculty and for students. But you know we learned a lot, and we've taken our time uh, rebuilding for this fall, basing on best practices and what we've learned. We do online uh, voice and instrumental lessons. We have well over 200 private lessons, people taking private lessons in a semester. And, uh, you know, and lessons won't happen in Dee Dee Francis' studio next door or Tommy Watson's studio after that. Maybe, maybe some under certain key circumstances with restrictions. But what might happen is they'll, those lessons will probably be done online and then occasionally uh, Dr. Perry, our music chair, and I are talking about uh, essentially telling every voice and instrumental student, you're also going to have a lesson, at least two lessons on either the Daniel stage or the Henderson stage. Uh, suddenly Henderson Auditorium with a thousand seats is like gold to us because the larger the space, the less threatening it is. And so uh, the real challenge is going to be the discipline 
uh, for the university, for our cleaning services, and especially for our students to get into a practice room and practice the requisite hours and then clean up after and make sure everything's good. Uh, and then we'll make sure someone else is coming in after them. So uh, it's, it's going to be a challenge and we're just going to have to feel our way through. It's kind of like um, I being raised in the north when uh, ponds and lakes would freeze in the winter. <laughs> you know, the first one out on the ice is always a little... <laughs> You hear a crack and you go, oh, and you start backing up, you know. <laughs> I guess we won't go that way. But, uh, but we are committed at Anderson University to provide uh, a live experience for our students that is uh, positive and in the arts that is focused on these fundamentals like I've been talking about. For example, we have a two-play uh, series in each semester, so four plays in a semester. Um, the first play scheduled for late September, September 23rd, 24th, uh, primarily a woman's play called The Women of uh, Lockerbie, where the bomb, where the uh, jet came down in Scotland, a beautiful play. And uh, uh, Mary uh, Nichols is directing the show for us, and we're so excited because she's such a wonderful director and that she's, she's so connected to that play. And, and the play set in outside, kind of on the heath, so to speak. Okay, in this kind of uh, metaphoric area, and uh, she was describing the set about a month and a half ago. And I said, "Well, Mary, let's just find a place to do it outside. Let's do it outside." There's two issues, you know. There's the issue in terms of safety of a, a performer in a performing event. The one issue is the safety of how do you how do you rehearse? And how do you block a play? How do you put them in close proximity? You really can't directly. And I think we can deal with that with a small cast and keep, and keep a distance among us. But the other issue is safety of your audience. And uh, by, by exploring places and venues, so to speak, that aren't venues, on campus, and we have like four or five of them right around this building that we want to look at with the administration, one particularly that we're interested in, uh, that would work lovely. And you keep it simple, and uh, that way you're not overemphasizing the visual element, and um, you know it works like that. But then it gets even more creative, because the second play was going to be a large uh, Stephen Sondheim musical called uh, Sunday in the Park with George. And <laughs> slated for Henderson Auditorium in the last weekend of October. Well, you know, we just kind of do this. What are we going to do? You know, we'd throw out ideas and then we'd try to tighten them and that wouldn't work and then we'd try to find another option. Uh, the best option we came to, and I really, really appreciate the work of David Solish. He's our new uh, chair of the theater program, musical theater specialist, and uh, had been the chair for four years at Bellhaven in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Terrific guy. And he was directing the show. So David and I began working together on this in late May, early June, and we thought, what, what happens if we rearrange the schedule? So let's take the large musical with 35 people and probably a crew of 20 people, and, uh, and instead of trying to figure some safe way to do this, 
let's rearrange the schedule so that uh, the play will take pl that play will take place in April, and the Shakespeare play that was slated for early April can take place in October. Which, interestingly enough, is going to be Richard III, which is rather intense. And so October tends to be a rather intense time. You know, you want to do something either spooky or, or, or some kind of intense uh, play. And uh, Rob Homer Drummond is always is one of my most creative people, always taking a new twist on things. He came to us about three weeks ago and said, I want to do a podcast of Richard III. And I want to do it in episodes. And he initially was talking about 10 episodes, and I said, whoa, 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 Rob, pull us back, pull us back. Let's talk about, so we've been negotiating, you know, what the, what the R3 uh, uh, podcast will look like. But the idea is that we, uh, we do a high-end audio record at, at rehearsals, and then in a certain segment, whatever that episode is, and, and then we actually present that episode, almost like a radio play. As we're talking, I keep coming from the radio play end of things, and I keep encouraging Rob to to make sure that it's uh, it might or to see if it might be something that on a Friday late afternoon, when we record that episode after it's rehearsed for a week or so, uh, we uh, we're able to maybe bring 15 or 20 theater students in to watch from the other side of the room, and they're all you know in one place. And Rob is kind of coming from the side of like, oh, if people are isolated, they could do this from home. Well, they could. But so, you know, we're gonna, we're kind of working this out. But I love, well, here's what I love about that, is it's that initial creativity of what the theater's about, and it's utilizing uh, a kind of social media and podcasts, which are wonderful. They're wonderful. Uh, I mean, you can hear, find just about anything out there. And, uh, and, and it puts us up there, kind of out there at a cutting edge of what to do with your technology. And here again, like uh, the issue on choral singing, or instrumental music. Uh, it's not about the great performance as much as it's about the experience that our students have. And our students getting experience working with post-production work four or five times, you know, in a row. Uh, that's just, that's dynamic. You mentioned, you mentioned radio drama. You know, some of the best writing of the last century was some of our best writers took plays and movies and oh, yeah. wrote them for drama for radio and there's some oh, really yeah. some powerful you have to condense and compact yeah but you're talking about doing things that you know more remote and not yeah. do the do the kids uh i know i'm not a performing artist but i know they they talk about feeding off the crowd is it harder to get energy up when you don't have a crowd to... well that's part of the challenge uh i imagine <laughs> I imagine, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm chuckling because uh, as Rob and I would talk, I, I, I'm always on the side of we need to have some kind of performance dynamic in this. You know, it can't just be sitting in my dorm room talking to the microphone. Uh, it's got to be, uh, it's got to have that kind of dynamic. And I finally said, I said, Rob, you're a really great director. And, and there's going to have to be regular rehearsals where you have everybody in a room somewhere. Maybe they've got plastic shields around them that we're going to develop. I don't know yet, but uh, but we've got to have some way, some way for you to be able to uh, tighten the shoelaces, so to speak, so that the whole thing is, has a focus and a direction. Um, and and he, he understands that. How many plays did you lose last year? Um, we lost his play. 
he was doing a, a comedy last year, and uh, it was supposed to open in early April. Oh, and he and he he would come back and he'd say, um, one he had one idea. It wasn't a podcast, but he said, "I want to do." Uh, <laughs> I. I, I, I've been in touch with this woman in New York who has this company, this guy in New York who has this company that, that can, can make um, avatars out of characters and plays and, and your actors can be the voices of that and that's what we'll do, you know? <laughs> it's so, and I, I, I love that about Rob, you know, because it's just pure creativity and, uh, and I, I wouldn't want him any other way because uh, it's not about getting the show on and it looking just like the last show or the last show you know it's always a new take on something and so this is a real fertile ground time for us in the performing arts to do something creative for example uh, the administration has made it clear that they don't have any expectations on us in terms of public performance events this spring this fall the most any performing you do my boss the provost said any performing you do is uh, is based on the student objectives in the class they're in and that's that's their safety is and the safety of everyone working with them is the most important thing and uh, and, and that's terrific well I went to the music department and hang on a second okay. I went to the music department and uh, they came back a few days later and said well, we're going to do a Christmas concert anyway. I said, what do you mean? So we want to do a video Christmas concert. And we may take our ensembles and put them in different places outside on campus in October and film them. You know, and I'd come back and I'd say, okay, well, I think that's a lovely idea. And uh, don't call it Christmas first night because Christmas first night is a, has, has parameters around it. And it's a very special thing in people's mind. So call it something else. That was my first suggestion. And, uh, and then, <laughs> um, but then I said, the biggest challenge there is video, you know, because we're a performing program. I mean, more than half the kids at South Carolina School of the Arts are here to perform. That was probably like 200 students. And, and performance-based programs, dance, music, and theater. And we're not necessarily a video program. We've got a video program over in communication that we're talking with. They're working on videoing chapels at a higher level. This year we'll have remote-mounted cameras in Henderson and put a studio up in the old booth. Um, and all of that's good. But, you know, it was like on one side somebody could say, oh, well, we'll just, we'll just film it. And I'd say, well, I just want to know who's doing the just, <laughs> and and how do you how do you how do you produce something that's of, of exceptional yeah, quality? How good do you want your music to sound? Yeah, yeah. You know, how do you do something exceptionally exceptionally high quality? But it's the same thing. I love it because it's new. It's they've never done it before. They need to drive it. You know, Rob wants to do a podcast of Richard the Third. Uh, Richard Williamson, director of choral music, wants to do a video concert at Christmas and it will be, you know, objective based in terms of courses and that kind of thing. So I, let's fight to have as high quality as we can, not fight, but you know, work hard to make these as high quality as we can and they'll give the community an opportunity to interface with us online. And that's the last thing I wanted to mention. <laughs> but uh, it, but what I, the second thing I want to mention 
I want to do is take advantage of the opportunity. And the opportunity is to turn, to turn, to fully turn the corner uh, into uh, digital access to the South Carolina School of the Arts. And so, instead of just saying, hang in there with us, we'll let you know, we want to say, hang in there with us and get to know us on the website, get to know us on our calendar. Our calendar is going to be interactive, it's going to be changing every week, and we want you to be involved. Here's how to be involved. So the, the main message is, yes, we have a couple of things we want to tell you that we're planning to do, but the main message here is the website. The main message is the South Carolina School of the Arts interactive website that's part of the university's website and uh, allows people to feel like they know who we are and we're expanding that into kind of a newsletter outreach, uh, human interest stories and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, if I'm a performing arts student and I'm coming in this, this year, I'm thinking, am I still going to get to perform, you know? No, but most of Yes, some. Maybe not as much. Uh, and I will go back to the first comment I made, which was which I truncated a little bit. Uh, we're going to be working on techniques and fundamentals diligently. We're going to take advantage of the opportunity uh, to make that the focus in performance classes. There will be performance opportunities, but they, you know, it. We can't put 70 people in the wind symphony on stage, you know, sitting next to each other doing this, sharing a music stand kind of thing. We, we, we can't do that. Um, we're going to have to do a lot of sectionals. Um, we may rehearse the wind symphony in very large spaces, <laughs> you know, for that opportunity. Uh, and we're going to have to smile and adjust. and. It's an interesting sound, though. It, well, it is an interesting. It will be an interesting sound. For another example, is a large university choir. Kids from all over campus come to. Very popular professor Chris Hansen directs. Just highly charismatic guy. Terrific. And so he attracts kids. Um, all of our choral ensembles, the three of them, they all meet at the same time, and that way it's easy to kind of do joint works together. And, um, but that's, that's 70, 75 people. And they usually meet in Daniel. We can't do that. But what we can do with 70 people is we could put Chris Hansen and an accompanist on stage, social distance, and put them in, put the choir in Henderson Auditorium facing the stage. And then they'd be 10, 15 feet apart. You can do that with 70 people when you have a thousand seats to work with, you know? But then, if, you know, but then in that, that may be where they spend most of their time, but they'll be working in, in uh, you know, in groups, getting things ready, going outside whenever they can. Uh, and that's what's happening all over the country, you know, which makes things interesting when you get to November and December. Or November, let's say, because I've, I've got some news on that. But, um, so anyway, uh, like I said earlier, Henderson Auditorium is going to be a premium. That's the biggest challenge, the choral one. Um, I, uh, you know, we've got so many wonderful performance groups and ensembles, but it's just we're just going to have to explore as we go through. And Anderson University has always been sort of the hub for all arts in the community. I mean, yeah. from theater to music, the things you're talking about. 
you are still committed to that. It's just a new way to do it. And the best place for people to really get engaged with that is, tell me again. Is at the website, uh, andersonuniversity.edu. And uh, go to the South Carolina School of the Arts. And uh, that site's growing and developing all the time. Uh, in fact, the new platform for the major site itself, uh, or the platform is a new one in the last three or four weeks. So, um, so we're excited. Market Theater of Anderson has also lost more than half of last season and a good bit of this season. Uh, so they are planning to try to move ahead and be ready when it is time to open again. And one of their directors, and he does some other things for Market Theater as well, Drew Whitley, had this to say about how the Market Theater had handled this time. Uh, tell everybody who you are. I'm Drew Whitley. And what, what do you do here? And I'm a director here at the Market Theater and I'm also the director of summer camps. And Tell me how this virus has affected you guys this year. You've lost a season and lots of things going on. Absolutely. So uh, the virus has caused us to miss five opening nights uh, this season. And uh, we figured that that puts us about $30,000 behind where we would be right now. So uh, in addition uh, to those five opening nights, it also really caused us to alter how we looked at summer camps this summer. And that's the biggest uh, piece of this puzzle that that I've been involved with. Um, I was also a, a director of one of the shows uh, that was canceled. So, um, so with that, you know, with summer camps, we decided that we really wanted them to be in person, if at all possible, and, and to make them safe. So we, we limited kids to 15. Uh, we put in um, some safeguards in place, like kids needing to wear masks when we're inside, the need for social distancing. Once we're outside, we space out and take off masks to be able to do uh, our different exercises. We've got temperature checks at the door and wellness checks with parents. So we've put all those sort of safeguards in place that's you know, really just been us reimagining and, and rethinking things. What kind of camps do you have? Sure, so we um, ran two different camps this summer. Now one of them we ran for two weeks and then we've got one more next week. So our first two weeks were a kids camp for uh, kids ages uh, seven to 12. And it was all around uh, the movie Trolls. So uh, we learned different songs, different scenes from Trolls. And then this upcoming week, we've got uh, a camp for teens, 13 through 18 year olds. And that camp is gonna be all around uh, space, out of this world, Star Wars sort of vibe. What, I mean, you've obviously been involved in theater for a while. What, well, how, how has it affected your theater community here at the Market Theater not being able to perform and put on productions and stuff? Oh yeah, that's a great question. You know, this is just, uh, it's such a tight-knit and strong community in the upstate. So, so not having it, I think at first, everyone felt a little bit lost in space. Not sure exactly what to, uh, what to grab onto, but um, the theater crowd is very resilient, obviously really creative, and so really quickly you saw initiatives start to pop up to combat that. So uh, one such initiative that the market helped spearhead uh, was the Curtains Up Coalition. So this group of theaters uh, around the upstate of South Carolina, all the way down to Greenwood, uh, that weekly they put on a showcase online and they use that showcase then to raise money for that group. So, so that was really the biggest change was kind of feeling, you know, I don't have my community around me. I'm not able to create. So that was temporary. And then all of a sudden sort of came together, you know, to be able to make those opportunities happen. Well, from Broadway to Anderson, you guys are not getting an opportunity to express yourself creatively. How is that impacting everybody? 
Um, I've seen uh, a lot of people that are pretty down about it, you know, frankly. Uh, you know, a lot of people uh, sort of bemoaning it. Um, there's been a, a sort of drive, like you said, all the way from, from Broadway across the country that's been that it's only intermission, is what a lot of people have said. And while that gives a little bit of hope, you know, that there's still a great sort of second act to come, um, people have definitely been down about it. But like I said, I think if hopefully if anything um, positive is that it's kind of, you know, brought to life a new creative spirit for people. What, do you know what shows y'all lost? You... Absolutely, so, um, so the first show that we lost, which is also the first show that we hope to put on after um, we're able to, to resume things safely is Matilda. So a, a really big, great family musical. Uh, after that, the next show that we lost that I was uh, planning to direct was the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And then uh, after that, uh, or excuse me, in between those two would have been Mamma Mia. So another really big uh, hit show. And then uh, we also then had to cancel our 24-hour musical, which is a, a huge community event every year. But luckily, we're working with our charity partner, uh, and we've moved them to next summer. So we're still going to get to partner with them. And y'all partnered with Shakespeare in the Park. That was lost this year. That's yeah, exactly right. Yep. So we lost uh, the Comedy of Errors this year. Um, but again, uh, plans to revamp that as soon as possible, and of course to definitely bring it back next summer. Do you have any tentative plans on what's next or any dates or anything maybe? So, so uh, no dates yet, just out of fear that we would have to cancel, you know, all over again or postpone all over again. But um, like I said, our summer camps have been kind of the thing that's kept us going in the interim because we felt like it was the one thing that we could do safely, you know, to kind of keep the market um, quote unquote alive right now. Uh, but like I said, just as, as safely as um, the science and the guidelines from the professionals tell us that we can resume is when we hope to come back. If, if it go, drags on, is there any creative way y'all can do online sort of productions and stuff? Yep, absolutely. So we've gotten our, you know, kind of gotten our feet wet uh, through the Curtains Up Coalition with producing online work. There's uh, an artist in the upstate, Sim, Sim, excuse me, Tim St. Clair, that's been working uh, with a group that he's created called Upstate Sings to produce these great videos. So he actually partnered uh, with the market a couple weeks ago to bring back together the cast of Next to Normal, which is a show, uh, I suppose maybe four years ago now, to produce a song from that. So I know that uh, Noah Taylor, the executive artistic director here, has been in contact with Tim, maybe about some opportunities to collaborate, to keep creating. Is there some where people can see that? Yep, absolutely. So, um, so if, uh, online on YouTube, if you Google uh, or search on there, uh, either Upstate Sings or if you search for Curtains Up Coalition, either one of those will bring up lots of great performances. What about your your patrons and your members and those people? How are y'all dealing with memberships and how are y'all communicating with them? Absolutely. So. Um, we did figure out really quickly that communication's been key through all of this. You know, even if it's just delivering hard news about another postponement, that's okay as long as you're staying in touch. So still been staying in touch with patrons, letting them know about our tentative plans uh, in terms of uh, Matilda being the first show back and then hoping to produce the other shows that we lost this season just when we're able to. So just keeping that line of communication uh, open with them. And um, as I said, through these other avenues that we've we've been exploring like Curtains Up Coalition, that, that they've still been able to engage with us through that. And they've, they've been really generous. We've raised thousands of dollars over the past few months uh, through efforts like that. And the arts community, like you said, they, they do tend to, you know, to work in different shows and different, different directors and different, even like, I know y'all had people who were in, uh, you know, um, the uh, Milltown Players plays right. and things like that. Uh, 
are they still in, in communication with each other about how to what's going on and how? Definitely. So uh, again, kind of going back to the beginning, that this is a tight knit community, and I think everyone figured out really quick the best way to get through it is to work together, um, to plan together, to see you know what's working for each theater, and. Um, to not treat it as a competition, but instead see it as an opportunity to, to build each other up. So I know that there's been a lot of, uh, of conversation and discussion. Um, in addition to that, the South Carolina Theater Association has been uh, doing bi-weekly roundtables of all the nonprofit theaters in the state. Again, share resources, share ideas, and figure out how to really think, keep things going. And as an actor and a director, I mean, unlike music where you could practice at home, how do you practice your craft when there's nowhere to practice your craft? Yep, no, absolutely. That's, that's a great question. So um, I feel lucky because I, I'm a teacher as well. So I'm, I'm directing these summer camps, but uh, I'm also a high school teacher uh, at DW Daniel High over in, uh, in Pickens County. And so that's how I've kept myself kind of going and thinking creatively. So uh, right now I, I was trying to figure out, you know, what can we do in the fall? Because it's not certain that school's even gonna be in. Uh, you know, how can we tell stories? So uh, I kind of teamed up with eight students uh, and right now we are in pre-production of a podcast that we're creating that's gonna tell stories of uh, teachers and, and other faculty and staff at Daniel. So I think it's just looking for those creative ways, you know, how can I still tell stories? How can I still create community? Um, despite the fact that we can't be together. And for the general public, the best way to get the latest news on the Market Theater is where? Uh, sure, the mar uh, excuse me, markettheater.org. Uh, we'd especially direct you to markettheater.org backslash give uh, right now, uh, of course, as we, uh, you know, we're trying to keep things going. And your Facebook, you keep that? Absolutely, yes. Facebook and Instagram as well, great places to look for the market. Also, most of the organizations who help others could really use your help right now. Those who really uh, help our disadvantaged friends and neighbors that depend on a little extra help when times get tough. Meals on Wheels of Anderson needs drivers. You can visit uh, Anderson County Meals on Wheels. It's acmow.org or the Meals on Wheels Facebook for more information on that. AIM is hosting a virtual tailgate with guest speaker and former Clemson NFL player C.J. Spiller next week. There's an auction already underway, and you can visit AIM Charity, A-I-M charity.org or the AIM website for more information on that. AIM also has some summer needs for food for kids including 100% juice pouches, Nutri-Grain bars, kid size pop-top ravioli, snack size applesauce. You can call them or email them or visit again their website or Facebook to get more information about those things. And of course AIM is also looking for uh, disposable masks and Clorox wipes for their volunteers during this time because they are delivering food to people's cars and stuff almost daily, uh, or weekdays anyway. The Salvation Army just completed a drive to collect school supplies for kids from disadvantaged situations, and the Salvation Army has just welcomed their new leader, Major Joseph Irvin, in July. And I talked to him about his goals for the organization as he comes to Anderson. Yeah, uh, well, my wife Melissa and I have been Salvationists our entire lives. She comes from a, a big army family. Most, all of her siblings are Salvation Army officers. Uh, her grandparents are retired Salvation Army officers. She has some aunts and uncles who are retired Salvation Army officers. Uh, my mother uh, was introduced to the Salvation Army when I was just a kid, and she fell in love with it. She retired as a social services caseworker, and she took all of her children to church at the Salvation Army. So I was raised as a Sally kid. I was one of those uh, children who did everything at the core, participated in all the youth events, went to what we call our youth councils, which is a weekend spiritual retreat for children or young people, young adults. And 
and time received my calling to ministry. Now, where which, was that? Where were you growing up? Uh, Virginia. I was born in, uh, and raised in northern Virginia. Uh, both my wife and, and I come from military families. Her dad was career U.S. Marines. My dad was career U.S. Army. So we were both military brats. My dad was, uh, I, came, I was uh, the last of three, and I came sort of later in life. Uh, my dad was already uh, retired by the time I was born. So we, I had a very stable life. I grew up in one place in Northern Virginia. Uh, she moved around. She's the oldest in her family, so she moved around with her family, her father, as he transferred from post to post. Uh, so, uh, like I said, we grew up in the Salvation Army as our church home. That's how our first interaction and engagement with the Salvation Army was at, as our church. That's where we uh, were converted, where we were saved, where we uh, uh, and our faith was nurtured in the Salvation Army. So when we got the call to officership or to ministry, it was, of course, in context of the Salvation Army. And like all Salvation, well, most Salvation Army officers, uh, we uh, were approved as candidates, were accepted, just like Rashad. Uh, you, you know that Rashad is going to training this year, and he'll spend two years at the Salvation Army's Evangeline Booth College. We uh, spent two years uh, starting in uh, 2000, and we were commissioned and ordained in 2002, and we've been serving in the Southern Territory here in the United States for 18 years. How did you end up in Anderson? How did this come about? Uh, in uh, April of this year, we got a phone call from our divisional commanders uh, in Kentucky and Tennessee. We were serving at the Salvation Army's Center of Hope in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and we were told that we would be changing appointments, transferring to Anderson, South Carolina. So uh, we had a couple months uh, to get ready, and in June of uh, 21st, uh, we, we, well, we left uh, Murfreesboro and came here. And what did you know about Anderson before you came here? Uh, nothing, actually. Uh, it, it was brand new. Uh, of course, the first thing you do is when you g uh, get an appointment to a, a new city is you look at, you Google it. And I, I got to learn a little bit about the history off of uh, the Wikipedia. I understand that you're the electric city. Uh, and uh, you, you get that moniker because you were one of the earliest, if not the first in uh, the Southeast to uh, be entirely powered by electricity. So that's an interesting uh, historical tidbit fact that, uh, and I love history, so uh, it was nice to read about that. And uh, I was able to look around and, and see the different, uh, uh, the geography and the, the, uh, the environment that you have here. You got Lake Hartwell and uh, a number of other really nice features. and so. Uh, the last time I spent any uh, time in South Carolina was when I spent three months at Paris Island in South Carolina. So uh, it, it's nice to uh, return to uh, South Carolina and get to know and, and get to serve here. It's good to be on the other end of the state, not down in the... Uh, that's right. Uh, uh, to get away from uh, Paris Island uh, and uh, be, have the freedom of enjoying a nice community is a, uh, is a, is a real treat. Well... I know you've probably talked to some of the, the previous officers here. What do you see as the biggest challenges you'll face while you're coming in here? Well, you have to, typically the Army teaches us to spend about a year to really get to know your community before you uh, begin to uh, cast a vision and begin to uh, really establish goals, long-term goals. Uh, so we're going to take the year and get to know our community, get to know everybody here, get to know our peer agencies, and get to know the needs of this community before we really dig in and, and try to advance the mission of the Salvation Army. Uh, one thing I can say, we will work hard to uh, 
advanced mission of the Salvation Army, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to meet human need in his name without discrimination. We're going to do that, but the exact uh, way that's accomplished in Anderson, I, we don't know yet. Uh, we already have a great ministry here, the Salvation Army, that is, has a great ministry with our shelter program and with the Boys and Girls program. Of course, COVID-19 and the pandemic has uh, changed the face of ministry and it uh, changed the face of all of our, our lives, uh, period, let alone uh, our, the way we conduct business and the way nonprofits are operating. Uh, our Boys and Girls Club has been uh, 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 shut down and uh, schools have been shut down since uh, the pandemic began. Uh, how and we will and when we'll begin to reopen and, and reestablish those programs and, and reestablish the connections to our, our, our kids our, and our, their families, uh, we don't know yet. And that'll be something we'll have to work through and, and get in place. Uh, but we're looking forward to continuing the great ministry the Salvation Army has and also just advancing it, uh, going deeper in the community, having a more significant impact. Uh, and uh, making the Army as open and available to as many people in this community that needs our programs and services as possible. And that's going to take a community effort, um, you know, everything from fundraising to uh, actually doing the ministry itself and the programs and services. We, we want to do it right and make sure that we're consistent in uh, the, the, the services that we're offering. What is your favorite part of ministry? Favorite part of ministry? would be getting to know people. One of the neat things about being a Salvation Army officer is the fact that we do get to move to new communities every so often. And uh, just discovering uh, new folks. Uh, my wife is a collector of people. And so Melissa, she, uh, she has uh, uh, a number of folks who we've made family. And uh, that's something that we get to, it's not unique to Salvation Army ministry, but what makes it so unique is the fact that we go from place to place. and. Uh, we have sort of an eclectic little group of folks who uh, are part of our, our, our circle of family. And uh, so that's probably my favorite part is just being able to rub shoulders with people, get to know so many different people, uh, to get down in the, uh, uh, the dirt and the mud and, and work hard with uh, so many different people, different groups, different agencies, uh, and just folks from the community who care about serving others. It, so just getting to know them, getting to, to work with them, and, and building sometimes what uh, turns out to be lifelong relationships. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's something I enjoy. As you're getting to know people, what, what are some of the either misconceptions or just lack of knowledge people have about the Salvation Army and your mission and what, you, what all you do? Well, probably the biggest is uh, they don't realize that uh, our work goes beyond Christmas. Uh, that's when uh, uh, the Salvation Army is an iconic part of that season. You, you cannot watch a Christmas movie without seeing a bell ringer or a Salvation Army band playing. It's just part of our culture. And uh, it, uh, the fastest way to establish a Christmas scene is to have a bell ringer. And everybody instantly knows that that time in the, the movie or the play or whatever it might be is, is Christmas time. Uh, and so people's uh, concept of the Salvation Army gets trapped into thinking, well, they're, they're good because they help people at Christmas and, you know, they have a thrift store and, and the like. Uh, but uh, as you all know here in Anderson, that the, the Army has a much greater impact and a much, uh, it's a 365, 24-7 uh, ministry uh, around the world. But here in Anderson, you've got the, the Salvation Army providing the Boys and Girls Club uh, and all those really rich programs, uh, those life enriching and, and, and academic enriching programs, uh, athletic enriching programs. And then, uh, of course, here you have the, the shelter, uh, 
and the, the ministry that takes place uh, in, in those four walls where people go from uh, being dispossessed and homeless to finding a place to call home and finding a community. So, And then we have uh, many people don't realize, as uh, we began our interview, me talking about uh, my wife and I being ordained and commissioned. The Salvation Army is a recognized Christian denomination. And as such, my wife and I pastor a small congregation of Salvationists who worship here and uh, grow in their faith as, uh, as Salvationists and as Christians right here. What can, uh, are you doing volunteers now or right now it's on hold? Uh, right now, our volunteerism, uh, we, we are holding off on that and try, uh, most of our stakeholders in the community are probably getting antsy and really wanting to get back into uh, doing their ministry with the Salvation Army. We have uh, delayed that until, uh, what, until we get further, until the restrictions loosen up and we're all, everyone is feeling comfortable and safe to be in close proximity with each other. It's, uh, we're having to take those safety precautions. So uh, yes, the, the short answer is we, uh, we're not taking volunteers at, at the moment. But in better times, can people now call and say, when it gets better, how can I help? What's, what's the best way for people that want to get involved and help in what y'all oh, are doing here? To, yeah. How and, can they do and, that? Yeah. Uh, when we're talking about one-on-one -on -one type of ministry or, or engaging in uh, programs and services, that'll wait a little bit. But the, there's still uh, many really nice ways of engaging and, and supporting the Salvation Army. Everything from writing your check, uh, making a donation to donating um, uh, food. Uh, we, we are still serving our shelter population and uh, we still serve fo folks who come to us needing food. So uh, canned food drive uh, is a great way to support the work of the Salvation Army as we provide uh, food pantry service uh, and uh, rent utility services and, and a hot meal uh, at night. Uh, so food is a great way to do that. Uh, and uh, the uh, again, the old check, uh, writing the check and dropping that in the mail and supporting the work of the Salvation Army. Uh, those are probably the two easiest ways, two quickest ways to, to support the work of the Salvation Army and prayer. Uh, pray for us as the new leaders uh, that God will uh, give us the wisdom and vision to, to lead the Army well. Uh, we've got a great staff here and we've got a great bunch of volunteers who in time we hope to be able to meet and work hand in hand with them. Uh, but uh, uh, I recognize that anything that has eternal value is a God thing and God has to do it. So uh, I do covet everyone's prayers on behalf of my wife and my family. Uh, to uh, so that we can uh, be the Salvation Army leaders that you need us to be. And the donations made here, it stays here. People, local, stays local. Is that correct? That's correct. That's always true in any Salvation Army uh, uh, effort that you would support. It stays locally. Uh, the, uh, the one exception might be with uh, disaster work, but of course, if you're funding a disaster or a hurricane along the coast, you know that it's going to the, the folks in South on the, along the affected areas and the like. And when uh, health restrictions begin to be lifted, people can come down and get a tour of the place and see everything? Absolutely. One of the, the neat things that uh, you, we've done in the past and there are other appointments, and, and I'm sure it was done here, uh, we call, like to call them lunch and learns. And we will invite folks, we'll, we'll send out an open invitation and we'll pare it down. It's not meant to be a, a large event. This is meant to be small and kind of an intimate setting where it's just a few people at a time. But we'll come and have lunch and uh, you'll learn some stories from folks who the Salvation Army has served and benefited and their success stories or, and their hardships and, uh, and how the Salvation Army supported them and, and provided much needed help. 
and then you'll get a little tour of our facility. You'll, you'll see the shelter and you'll see, uh, or the Boys and Girls Club, whatever uh, program that we're highlighting in that Lunch and Learn. And so you get, you get a chance to have an up close and personal uh, hour just getting to know the Army better. Well, to find out more about how you can support the Salvation Army here in Anderson County, uh, you can call the Salvation Army at 864-225-7381 uh, or visit us on Facebook. If you can help within these organizations, you know, money's always a good place to start if you have any. Uh, or you can find out other ways to help at their Facebook pages. And with August half gone, don't forget to check out the Anderson County Farmer's Market for the best of local fresh produce. There's still plenty of summer tomatoes. Now local peaches and corn are coming in. And they are open Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturday. And most of the vendors are there on Saturday, I have to tell you. There's still people there on Tuesday and Thursday if you need some tomatoes or peaches or some of the basics. But if you want to see the widest variety, come on Saturday. Social distancing and masks are being um, required there. And they, it's been working out really well. You can visit the Anderson County Farmers Market Facebook page for more information and the most up-to-date information on that. And despite all this chaos, the Anderson County Economic Development Group just continues to bring new industry in, a new structure for new industry to the county. Uh, county Council recently agreed to uh, give tax incentives for a private developer to build a spec industrial park. And now construction is underway. And Pelzer Point will feature more than 200,000 square feet of space. And they will market it to industry and try to bring more new industry to the county's nice looking building. Keep in mind the past two industrial parks which were purchased and developed with money from Anderson County were sold before they could even be completed. So it helps the county not to have to spend any money at all to get someone to do recruiting for us to bring in new business. And this fast growing county, again, I mentioned this before, People, a lot of people don't realize Anderson County has the most international development of any county in the state of South Carolina with 51 companies from 18 nations here. So that's interesting to see that continue. And along those lines, there's a job fair set from August 20th from 9 to 11 a.m. at the Civic Center. Uh, I know Arthrex will be there, Mission will be there, some of the other big players will be there. And with unemployment sort of where it is now, it's a good time for people looking for good work to uh, get out and see what's available. And that's it for this week's Anderson Observer Podcast, news from people you trust. Hope you'll join me again next time. But until then, get out and do something to make Anderson a better place.